Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. And this is our It's Black History Month, so I guess it's time for the presidential candidates to start talking about black people episode. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang, book editor for Brown is the New White and director of strategic communications for Democracy in Color. Hi, Charlene. What do we have on tap for our listeners today? Hey, Steve. Well, the presidential race is reaching peak intensity and the primaries, and we're going to dive right into things with a quick update and overview of the race and catch up on things that have happened since our last episode. And then we'll be joined by a very special guest today, Maurice Mitchell. He's the national director of the Working Families Party. And I'm really looking forward to talking to him, and not just because he's a fellow native New Yorker. You guys all stick together. Yeah, we have a lot of pride. But really looking forward to that. Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to Maurice too. He's been a very distinctive uh, new leader in terms of the public profile, in terms of the national landscape. And so I'm really excited to get into it with him. One of the things we'll be talking about today is the piece, the article that you have coming out this week in The Nation, which is going to be titled Letter to the Left. And so everybody should be on the lookout for that. Or even easier way is you can sign up for updates through our website democracyincolor.com. And when you sign up, you'll get notices when Steve's articles come out, when our podcast episodes come out, and other kinds of great updates. Okay, so with that, let's get into it. Steve, I know you have a couple of things you wanted to get off your chest, lots on your mind about the presidential race. So I'm going to give you your chance now. (laughs) So what do you got? Yeah, so I don't feel like a little bit like, you know, Lewis Black from The Daily Show. We're doing his uh, rants, except he's a white guy named Black, but otherwise the same. Right? A little older, but yeah. Yes, yes. Cranky. Thank you. Thank you for I'll that you uh, distinction. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's two things that are on my mind that this past couple of weeks as the race was heated up, and I really wanted to share them here. I think it might offer some insight into how other African Americans are experiencing the race particularly as it heads towards South Carolina, where majority of the voters are going to be black, and several other more diverse states. It's California, Texas, Alabama, um, and several others. So versus, I just can't help rolling my eyes and feeling alienated with all of the recent rhetoric about and attention to people of color in general and African Americans in particular, right? So we're in Black History Month now, days away from the heavily Latino Nevada caucuses, and then the South Carolina primary week after that, And really only now, it feels like, over a year into this contest, are we getting an intense focus on black issues and voters. And the other thing I just cannot get out of my mind in terms of how this has all played itself out is that when this race began back in January of 2019, the majority of the announced candidates were women and people of color. And yet, then with all this obsession and incorrect analysis about electability, and again, it bears repeating, the only time Democrats have won the White House in the past 20 years has been with a person of color atop the ticket. But then you had all these other people, predominantly white men, not the least of which being Joe Biden, looked at Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Julian Castro, Elizabeth Warren, and decided that none of them were good enough to be president, that the country needed their particular brand of brilliance. And so most of the past year has been spent focusing on touring Iowa, talking to Iowans, talking about the, to the mainly white voters there and carefully crafting messages that would appeal to conservative Trump-supporting white working-class voters in the Midwest. When, if people could actually count correctly, even with their Midwest focus, that being able to increase turnout of voters of color in the urban areas, Detroit, Milwaukee, Philadelphia, is actually a much more promising path to the White House. But the constellation of all of that 
how this has played itself over the past year, then now just starting to talk about black voters and talk to black people it really has just been very, put it mildly, frustrating. To yeah, me. I definitely I definitely hear you on that. And I've been following what's been happening. There's this sort of like shift that's happening where there's just more talk about, you know, voters of color, black voters, and I've just been all a bit side eye about it as if it's like, where, where, where have you all been? <laughs> why, have, why, why is this just now happening? And it's been so many months, like you said, a year. I wanted to, yeah, I noticed there was uh, like, there's all these comments out there and there was a great line last week by a consultant named Mike Murphy and he was on a podcast called Hacks on Tap. And he said, um, this is his quote, it's going to be, this is really funny. It's going to be the whitest fight since a riot broke out at an Osmonds <laughs> concert. <laughs> and they're, they're the whitest people in the Democratic Party stumbling down to a place where the African-American vote is incredibly important. And I think that def- definitely like kind of sums up like, kind of this sort of awkwardness and just dramatic contrast to, you know, in my mind, just what it could have been and, how, and what some of us thought it was going to exactly. be like. Right. And that's the frustration. Yeah. What it could have been. So uh, you said there were two things you wanted to share. So what's the second? Yeah, and then it's related, right, in terms of the second piece. And I really do feel like that like, I'm, I'm experiencing this election like a parallel universe from a lot of my activist friends who, particularly in the past couple of weeks as the race has heated up, are you know very passionately, intensely debating on social media the merits and lack of merits of Bernie and Bloomberg and Warren. And I think that part of what frustrates me is that a lot of these either you know attacks or defenses or whatnot has to do with which of these candidates is good for black people and so i look at it like all these candidates are flawed jesse jackson's not running we're not going to have another obama in 2020 and so frankly it's hard for me to get too worked up about the problems that any one of these remaining candidates has on racial justice issues, because that presumes that the other candidates are like light years better. And so that, in a lot of ways, is really the essence of this piece that I'm doing um, in the nation's letter to the left, is I don't feel that anybody in the primaries right now is adequately speaking to the white nationalism, which is the essence of Trump's power and support. Right. So what do you think they should be doing? Well, I think first, and there's where I'm putting a lot of my time and energy is going forward, and what I'm actually much more passionate about is who's going to be the vice president, right? So I'm, I'm, I care much more about who the white nominee will choose to be their vice president than I do about which white person is going to be the nominee. Right. And so uh, let me guess, and you would love to have the VP nominee be Stacey Abrams, right? Our first podcast guest, actually, yes. Now, I actually think Stacey would be a great choice. And there are probably some other folks, but Stacey would be uh, an incredible choice. Julie Martinez Ortega and I were crunching these different numbers. And what we actually found, which was quite fascinating to me, is that looking at how well Stacey did and the centrality and necessity of uh, the Democratic ticket to do well with African-American voters, that Stacey has won more black voters in a statewide election than anybody who has ever run for office in the history of this country. In the history. is that So that includes uh, all the votes that Obama received? Right. So Obama ran in all the states. Right. So you add up all of his. Obviously, he had more. But in no single state mm-hmm. did Obama actually do better than Stacey did. That Georgia is such a black state and she did That's so amazing. well in Georgia that in terms of a, pro- a proof point about the ability to inspire and mobilize and galvanize black voters. And so she received more votes than he did in Georgia. 
Yeah, she received more votes than anybody who's ever run for. I know. Uh, I think it's just so in, hard in to Georgia. wrap my head around. I'm like, yes, I really so. want to get it straight and make sure right. that I got so it correctly. That's amazing. More black votes than anybody who's ever run in a statewide election before. So it proves the point what we're actually going to need. And so the other thing about Ms. Stacey in particular, but the vice presidential uh, position in, in, in general, is that it's going to take a long time to dig out from all the damage that this president has done, all the destruction, all the attacks. And so, like, frankly, I'm one of the things I'm most excited about happening in the country right now is what's going on in Virginia. That where you know, New Virginia majority, Tram Nguyen, a lot of the progressive you new know, elected officials there are running the table of things they're passing in terms of, you know, uh, uh, equal rights amendment, uh, minimum wage, um, the expanding uh, democracy, getting rid of the Confederate memorials. There's just a whole slew of things that they're doing. So that's the, what's exciting to me about what this country could be at a time when Trump is trying to tear all those different pieces down. So I'm looking like over the next decade, can we replicate what happens in Virginia and Arizona and Texas and Georgia and ideally do that with supportive, inspiring vice president who could then become president. So in a lot of ways, I'm looking much more at 2028 in terms of my energy and animus than I am about 2020. I'm like, let me know who it's going to be so we can all get behind that person. But I'm not feeling the level of intensity and take it or leave itness that I'm sometimes seeing a little bit on social media right now. Yeah, I couldn't help but stop. When you were saying 2028, my mind just went, well... I just remember when even 2020 felt like so far away and to start thinking about 2028. um, But yeah, I get it. You you have a point. And I do hear people saying that this idea of, well, this is just one year and it's really easy to get caught up on how everything needs to happen a specific way this year or else we're totally doomed. But that to keep in mind that as always, history goes on, you know, and the world goes on and it's about keeping in mind the big picture, perspective. Right, and that's, I think, for me, helpful, you know, ground me as I came of age in politics in the Rainbow Coalition where we were very explicitly connected to the legacy of the civil rights movement and that tradition. So we saw ourselves as part of a multi-decade, if not multi-century movement. And so looking at this election being in a similar context as well is very much more kind of keeps me more grounded. Definitely, that sounds good. And things that keep you grounded are a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> and because of the kind of work you do, we need to also make sure that you stay grounded because I know you get yourself on that Twitter and it's easy to get all worked up. I know. I need, worked, to, I need to get off up. Twitter, go for more walks in the park. Yeah. Definitely. And then remember, you said, did you say like New Year's resolution? One of them was to meditate more. Yes. And if I could just is find that, the time, if I could just find the time to meditate, it would all be great. <laughs> so anyway, speaking of focusing on this year, let's bring it back because we do also need to dive into 2020. It is Still, it is important to also talk about and think about how impactful we can be within 2020. And with that, I'm excited to get into today's conversation with our special guest, Maurice Mitchell. Maurice is an activist, organizer, and musician, an Afropunk musician to be exact. And currently he is serving as the national director of the Working Families Party, a progressive political party known for cross-endorsing candidates through something called fusion voting. Yes, for people who don't know, the Working Families Party is a national progressive organization, which in New York State is actually a political party. And so in New York, they have this thing called fusion where the Democratic nominee can also be nominated or the, by the Working Families Party. And so you can vote for that person on the Working Families Party ticket, and they can quantify the size of their support, which makes them more of a political force and a player. And so that's what they've really been doing um, in New York State. 
and then they were expanding out nationally, playing a significant role trying to build up progressive left electoral power in a number of states across the country. Thanks for that, Steve. I know I was talking about Working Families Party the other day, and somebody said, is that a party? How does that work? And so that's, that's very helpful. Maurice has served in the role for the past two years. He is the party's first African-American national director, and he's the son of immigrants from Granada and Trinidad. He is also the founder of Blackbird, a movement-building organization that offers communication services and has worked closely with Black Lives Matter Global Network, and also he is a father. Hi, Maurice. Thank you for joining us. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time, Maurice. Really appreciate it. And I wanted to begin with a question that I know is on the mind of every black activist, and that is that a big part of your visual brand is you are known for having a strong hat game. (laughs) And yet another prominent black activist, Rashad Robinson of Color of Change, also is a strong hat game, was recently featured in the New York Times. So which of you started rocking the hats first? By the way, this is the first time I've ever heard Steve ask a question remotely related to fashion and so this is a really big deal um but when we we do we've all noticed we, we admire the oh he's got cool style oh this is funny so you know i've known i've known rashad for a while we both grew up in long island mm. uh we, we we go back we actually go back you know he had locks at one point i i still have locks <laughs> now the hat the hat question that is a, a good I'm gonna look. You know, I am both self-interested at times, but also a sober strategist that deals with the facts as they are. I okay. think, so, so I think Rashad, like his hat game, probably is a little bit longer than mine. Okay. Uh, like, I mean, I in fact, in that New York Times profile, listen, I can't light a flame to that hat. Game. Yeah, there so was I'm like a, I'm a, a couple I'm dozen give, hats. I'm gonna give this one to Rashad. All right. <laughs> give you, you, you have something to aspire to as you move forward, right? Absolutely. There's, there's always growth. <laughs> oh, that's, um, that's it's like a good little segue. I also wanted to just give a shout out. You were saying you were from New York originally? That's, that's correct. Yeah, I'm, yeah. From, I'm yeah, born yeah. in New York City, raised in New Jersey. So shout out. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if we could, let's bring it back to politics. And Maurice, by way of background because I think it's relevant to appreciate the work that you're trying to do. Can you tell us why did you go to taking over the Working Families Party? So if we could just go back to 2016, right? Um, many of us in social movements were trying to figure out the best way to, to be involved. And there was, there's always in social movements, there's debates about what our role should be in electoral moments, right? And social movements play this really great outside role that kind of create the conditions and sort of set the narrative that electoral actors play in. And I think we weren't resolute enough about what the full complement of electoral interventions needed to be. And many of us had forecasted that Trump would not be victorious. So when Trump was elected, I think it was honestly a wake-up call for many of us around what our role should be. We recognize that there's a very, very important role, role for outside power for the power of social movements. And social movements, when they're at their best, they render the impossible possible and they render the invisible visible. And we felt like we had done that. And they pose questions, social movements pose questions and they surface contradictions. Now, nature doesn't like vacuums, power doesn't like vacuums. So when those questions get posed or the contra- those contradictions get surfaced, 
they call for being resolved and they call for being answered. The people who generally get to resolve and answer those those questions and resolve those contradictions are people with the most organized power. And that's either organized capital or people with a significant amount of governing power. And that tends not to be people in social movements or people accountable to social movements. And in the era of Trump, when literal white supremacists, Steve Bannon and Steve Miller, were able to enter the White House and Trump was able to ride his way to the White House riding a, a white Christian identity wave, I felt like I had a duty to reassess based on the, the political landscape where I would be most useful. And the place that I ultimately landed was I would be most useful in bringing together social movement energy with the ability to govern and also do in a way that centers people of color and talks in a very popular way about race and class. And taking over working families was a unique opportunity for me to operationalize all those things at once and do it to scale. And so that's what brought me to working families was the political conditions. And so I feel very much like I'm on assignment from social movements to create this united front that brings social movement energy together with a very serious capacity to be able to run and win elections up and down the ballot. Because we need to be able to govern. We can't simply be, be the, law, the loyal opposition. We actually need to have the capacity and desire to take power. Like this is, you know, in many ways, this is what the black radical tradition has always been about, self-determination, right. right? And so we need to, we need to operationalize that. Yeah, that's all that I found very so very interesting about watching what you guys are trying to do. And first of all, it does it does need to be said and I think said out loud because we have to be having these conversations in the progressive movement if we're going to overcome the structural racism in societies that well much of the progressive movement, including Working Families Party, historically was a predominantly white led organization. So it was a very significant change in its caring uh, uh, bring Maurice on. But really, I think also this point around trying to bring movement sensibility into this electoral space, right? And that was one of the things that really was very pivotal for my own development. And that's partly why it was so compelling to me to get my baptism in the Rainbow Coalition. You know, somebody was with Dr. King, literally, when he was killed, then bringing that energy, the civil rights movement, the activists, the groups, translating that into an electoral force and operation. And so it's been very interesting to, to try to watch what you guys are trying to do um, at Working Families as you've um, moved in that direction. And Maurice, I wanted to ask you again, in this sort of context, I wanted to ask you a question about a topic that I know you've um, been asked before, but wanted to hear from you directly. Like, tell us about how Working Families decided to get involved early in the presidential primary in this particular cycle and uh, why the organization ultimately decided to back Elizabeth Warren. Uh, sure. So. The reason we decided to get in early was based, again, on assessment of the political conditions. This is, in many ways, we feel, the most important election of our lifetime, <laughs> right. right? It's, I mean, the, the, what is on the ballot, it's such a, it's a stark question of the direction, not just this country is going, but the world is going at a time of rising authoritarianism. And we did not want to be spectators and the capacity that you lose if you don't use it and you can't regain is time right time is something is a it's just a resource that you you have to use when you have it and so the earlier you're in a race the more you can have an impact on that race and so that's that's why we came in early, and that's why we were willing to come in early. Given the stakes, we just felt like the earlier we came in, the more we would actually be able to 
inform the race at a time when there were a lot of people who were informing the race. White, white supremacists had their candidate. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of the, the centrists had their candidates and were operating. And we wanted to get in and uh, organize for our candidate. Now, uh, let me pivot to Elizabeth Warren. I think it's important to note that last cycle we in endorsed Bernie, and we have a lot of positive things to say about Bernie, his activist, his campaign. And he did a lot to lift up and give credibility and create the conditions where we're having conversations like Medicare for all and wrestling with the idea around whether or not um, healthcare is a commodity or a right. right. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that. At the same time, this is a different election with a different set of dynamics. And we felt that Elizabeth Warren, um, now speaking specifically about Elizabeth Warren, we felt that she, number one, had a unique ability to articulate in, in kind of the way that not only, but certainly a, a, uh, a grade school teacher can mm -hmm. articulate what's wrong with our society, the structural basis of what's wrong with our society. The fact that, yeah, in many ways, these systems are rigged, actually articulate with nuance, uh, but in a popular way, how they got rigged and the ways that we could organize together to unrig it and bring together a coalition to do that um, in the way that she demonstrated when she won against Scott Brown. And at that time, people didn't necessarily think she would be able to defeat a very popular, moderate, incumbent Republican, right. and she did. And she did it by engaging in that unique appeal that she had. The other thing I would say is that she knows how to operationalize very, very big things. So as a private citizen, she was able to both conceive of and then figure out how to pass through Congress the CFPB, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Right. right? And what's interesting about that story is there were mainstream Republicans and Democrats and large columns of capital, like the entire banking industry, which, spoiler, is one of the most powerful industries um, in our society, if not the world, right. were opposed to the CFPB. And she was able to develop a very sophisticated inside-outside strategy to get it through. And so thinking about what she was able to do against capital um, as a private citizen, we're really enthusiastic about what she could do from the White House. Yeah, no, it's interesting to talk about her uh, narrative uh, skills. So that's something that's really quite impressed me as I was really surprised. Um, it hadn't been her profile necessarily, and then her ability to really break things down in a very simple and understandable fashion um, actually has been uh, quite distinctive. But I wanted to, I want to ask you on this, could you, this other question, right? So I, you know, we I did this piece for The Nation it's coming out uh, this week, I think February 21st, we're calling Letter to the Left. And, that, and so you were saying that in terms of your own decision to come into uh, working families and move from movement to electoral space, how Trump had gotten elected riding this white Christian identity wave. And so what I was positing in this piece in the nation is that that does certainly, from my analysis, seem to be core to Trump's strength is really white identity politics invoking white nationalism, playing to that as aggressively as he can. And from my standpoint, I have not seen as much from the left, left groups and the, and the left candidates explicitly taking that on. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Like, how do you kind of see that? Where does that part of the fight fit in the narrative and the framing? Looking, you hear a lot about taking out corporations and corruption and the 1%. 
but not as much about this fundamental white nationalist dimension to Trump's presidency. So I would I would agree with your analysis. So there's a reason why they call it racial capitalism, right? We have two threats, white supremacy and the consolidation of corporate power. And the commingling of the white, white supremacist agenda with the corporate agenda. And I would say that to put my Elizabeth Warren partisan hat on, but also to put my just sort of strategist hat on. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has a number of plans. She she is one of the candidates on the debate stage that has a specific plan that is dedicated to challenging white supremacy and white nationalism, right? And one of the other things that I think have drawn a number of, of people of color, especially people of color activists and organizers, to Elizabeth Warren is not just her ability to teach, like I talked about, but her ability to listen. And in all of her plans, her plans represent a, a pretty sophisticated intersectional race, class, and gender analysis. And you know, she's had, for example, a specific focus on black maternal health. Uh, she's had a specific focus on on how climate change and the environment impacts frontline communities. So again and again, I've seen with her campaign the ability to course correct, for example, when folks in communities of color have challenged her. But to your greater point about the progressive community, I do think that we've had a lack of analysis and a sort of class reductionism mm -hmm. that has been unfortunate in way too many spaces on the left that have not given credibility to the fact that we are in a country where the greatest form of solidarity has been white supremacy. And it's so powerful that white workers are more readily identified with a white billionaire right. than black workers and Latinx workers, right? And it is to our detriment as a movement to be silent on race when the far right is clear and explicit about race. And so, and, and then to, to the other point, if we don't elevate uh, candidates of color, we lose. And if you, I mean, just think about it. If you do a survey of the most exciting folks in progressive and democratic circles, the candidates that most people talk about, they all, almost all of them are women of color, mm -hmm. from the squad to Stacey Abrams. And there's a reason for that, right? It isn't just about identity also. Like, these are women of color who are running in a different way and are unapologetically progressive, right? And we think there is lessons to be learned. And I think that, unfortunately, there's progressive folks who are still not apt to learn those lessons, even when we have a, had a cycle when so many women of color did so well and unlocked so much energy because of the historic nature of the races. Right. So what, what would you say... Because that's like I was looking at the speeches the campaigns all gave at the Iowa dinner, which is kind of like the seminal moments where Obama broke out in 07, et cetera. And again, I think both from Bernie and from Warren, setting aside the more moderate candidates for the moment, that you hear, I think, a lot of language about like, you know, corporations, corruption in Washington, taking on the powerful but very, very little racially explicit language in general and very, very little about tackling this pillar of Trump's support, which is the which is the white supremacy piece. Do you think that is that there's not a comfort level with talking about these issues? Is that a calculation that would turn off some folks in terms of making it front and center in the in, in their candidate candidacies? What's your assessment of all that? Yeah, you know, I can't speak to the that particular sliver like canvassing 
the Iowa dinner speeches. But what I what I can say, what I what I will say broadly is that many people in progressive circles, in democratic circles on the left, need an education and need to develop a more sophisticated analysis around how to art, how to articulate in a popular way the realities on the ground as it pertains to race, class, and gender. And to not to engage in a reductionist sort of narrative about the things that are facing everyday working people. So I would say that in general. I would say, and this is one of the reasons that I personally, but we institutionally, have been strong backers of Elizabeth Warren. She has pretty consistently, she's often sort of known as the, the candidate with the most plans, right? And I think sometimes people pejoratively suggest that, oh, she's a technocrat, she's obsessed with, with plans. The, the substance of the plans, I think, are, are worthy of people's uh, inspection. Two things about them that speak to racial justice. Number one, it's obvious, based on the substance of the plans, that they were developed through a process of consultation, and a process of consultation that was clearly multiracial. Number two, all of these plans explicitly talk about race, explicitly. Uh, so I can't speak to her Iowa dinner speech, but I would say that, number one, I would say that any presidential candidate, but certainly Democratic presidential candidates that aren't able to authentically and meaningfully and consistently engage in a conversation around racial justice, they do it at their detriment. Uh, in a race where we know that people of color will vote, right, but the question that will determine whether or not we have a Trump presidency will be the enthusiasm of the black vote or the brown vote, voters in Philadelphia, voters in Milwaukee, voters in Detroit. And that enthusiasm is only stoked through a meaningful and deep and long engagement around the issues that are facing those voters, which aren't, again, I, we, we shouldn't have a race reductionist conversation, right? Because black voters breathe air, black voters are workers, but, but there is a racial dynamic to all of those experiences that if ignored, black voters here, you aren't talking to me. Right. And I think that that's true. Right, yeah. I want to jump in here, um, Maurice, speaking of ideas and how to tackle these challenges. Uh, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Steve's article coming out in The Nation, which is called Letter to the Left. And in it, he has two calls to action for Democratic primary candidates right now. And I'd like to get your thoughts on them. The first thing he's calling for is a joint call for a desegregated ticket. And what that means is really putting pressure on and calling for progressive groups to all insist that all of the candidates commit to picking a person of color to be their running mate, to have a person of color as VP, committing to that publicly. That's the first call to action. Second call to action is a joint call for $500 million to be invested into people of color, voter of color mobilization this election cycle, as opposed to the uh, you know, other election cycles we've had where it feels like almost zero you know, out of the half a billion to a billion that is spent over a cycle. And again, half of the Democratic voters are people of color, as we know, although it seems like a lot of people need reminding of that, including party leaders. But the party is always under investing in the work to get people of color folks out there to the polls and mobilized and inspired. Yeah, let me, let me take the last thing first. So the idea of a surge of money, diverting a surge of money that would traditionally go to, I guess, D.C.-based consultants and the placement of television ads, 
to organizations and communities that are in motion on the ground in various states, I couldn't think of a more important intervention. <laughs> so, you know, like there are organizations that are doing year round work that already have deeply trusted relationships in their communities. Uh, these are organizations that people are constantly engaged in around civic engagement and voting. Um, these are leaders that are trusted in a very deep way in, in their communities. And a dollar invested in them is probably the most efficient and effective way to engage with people in those communities. And uh, the fact that these organizations continue to be under-resourced and make a dollar out of 15 cents is incredible when we have a Democratic Party establishment that often <laughs> loses races that should not be lost. You would think that people who continue to lose in spectacular fashion would try new strategies and invest in different strategies. I mean, this is one of the reasons why the Working Families Party exists, because we think that too much of the strategy against the right wing is being led by DC-based consultants that have a profit motive embedded in leading certain strategies, right. right? And so I couldn't think of a better intervention, like to invest in organizations like Top in Texas or Lucha, Lucha in Arizona or New Georgia Project in Georgia and you know, investing in folks who are committed to and have a relationship to, to people on the ground. The idea that simply focusing on an election uh, and building sandcastles that, that will just be sort of washed away by the tide the day after the election is just, just from a, a efficiency and investment strategy, it seems like ludicrous when you could invest in institutions that have a year-round presence that do incredible work by all measures. And then the final question around a VP of color, the data to me is pretty conclusive. If you look at just the last cycle, the strides that women, but specifically women of color made in the midterm should give people all the data points that they need to recognize that when you have candidates of color on the ballot, you do better. <laughs> so to me, it would be remarkable if every single presidential candidate isn't thinking very seriously about which vice presidential candidate of color should be on the ticket with them. One of the most transcendent figures in recent memory is Stacey Abrams. And right. there's a reason why right. she constantly gets talked about in, in all of these like sort of deep stakes. There's a reason, right? And I mean, she is like such a rare figure, but Part of it is because she's an unapologetic black woman yep. running in ways that we've, we've rarely ever seen. And so if people are interested in winning, it will require people to get over embedded white supremacy that goes unchallenged. They would take the idea of a vice presidential candidate of color very, very seriously. So I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with the thrust of those sort of suggestions. So, yeah. But yeah, you know, we're just you're you're the first person that we're sharing the the highlights of the article with. So it's right. good to get your thoughts. My next question is for both you and Steve. And what we usually do before the end of each episode is we love to end with kind of a light, fun question. And uh, okay. in, in light of the fact that you're our special guest, we, our question <laughs> for today is: What was your first concert? Wow. <laughs> Fun question. <laughs> well, you know, so I can answer this a lot of ways. So my first, uh, I, I was a young musician, so I was a, 
the lead singer of a hardcore punk rock band. Many people don't can't accept that because I'm a pretty mild mannered person, but I was. <laughs> is there video? Uh, is there video? Oh yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny. Like I had a staff retreat, and my staff uh, embarrassed me by finding the video on YouTube and playing it in front of the entire That's staff. That's awesome. But, yeah, there's receipts. There's there's plenty <laughs> yeah. of receipts. So I mean, my technically my first uh, my first concert was a, a very obscure hardcore punk rock show in Long Island. Awesome. Um, but um, you know, my first when I was a grown up and I was on my own, I saw Prince. Yes. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. I, yeah, I was. It was like the the um, late '90s when I was in college, right. and I saw Prince. And after that, no matter how little money I had, and Prince tickets were 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 not cheap, I would cobble together that money and see Prince if he was even remotely playing anywhere near me. I love and it. That was such a good investment in my spiritual and emotional growth. And, you know, the sad thing is I always thought that I would be able to pass that on mm. uh, to my child. And I I mean, Prince was somebody who I just always thought would just be, I thought he was like some sort of like immortal. Ascended, and ascended God. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I and I, I, I point to that when there was like a rupture in the universe that has led to everything bad since then. Mm. <laughs> I was like, if we had Prince, I feel like we would be able to make everything it. would be better. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I will both uh, simultaneously surrender my black card and demonstrate that contrary to what some people feel that I do have the pulse and interest of middle uh, Midwestern typical white people. The first concert I remember really going to was a K- Kenny Rogers concert in the Cleveland oh, suburbs. Yeah where I believe the only black people in the entire concert <laughs> place were me and the drummer. Wow. Wow. That's wow. Awesome. And you were thinking when this was what year? That was high school, so it was early 80s. Nice. You got to know oh, you, when to go. hold. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Maurice, no you, when to yeah, hold. all right. <laughs> Maurice, you won't believe this, but my answer was also and is also Prince. But mine was wow. in when I was 15. Uh, it was in the 90s, and it was a huge. I was a huge fan. I couldn't believe it. I was very excited. My friend, um, and I got to go. Her parent, her mother drove us there and stayed in the parking lot the whole night in New York City. Again, I grew up in Jersey, and she drove us all the way to New York City, and we got to see him, and it was absolutely amazing. And uh, yeah, just that was for me like uh, you know i didn't know any better it was my first concert the bar was super high oh, wow. it was absolutely oh, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah and uh right. it's great all right so we're actually going to have to wrap up here it's always shocking to me at least not to our and to the dismay of our uh producer that um <laughs> how fast time actually goes when you're having fun right but we really want to appreciate uh you know uh, thank you, Maurice, for taking the time to share with us today. I really appreciate your leadership and your work out there in the movement. Um, and again, thanks for taking the time. And I'm going to want you to take me hat shopping at some point. <laughs> uh, West Coast or East Coast? Oh, definitely West Coast. <laughs> <laughs> I know just the place. Uh, Great uh, talking to you, Maurice. Fun. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you so much. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. We'd like to thank our special guest, Maurice Mitchell. You can follow Maurice on Twitter, where his handle is at MauriceWFP. And you can follow the Working Families Party at 
at Working Families. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy and Color on Facebook, or signing up for our mailing list at democracyandcolor.com. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang and April Elkier, recorded at the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.